You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. In the time before Christ, the Jews went through a time of exile. While in exile, they would build temples scattered away from their homeland. During that time, a city named Ephesus was created by the Greeks and taken by the Romans. Roman rulers would connect the world with Rhodes. Paul was able to capitalize on both. Scattered Jewish temples connected by the Roman Empire Rhodes which led Paul to Ephesus, where he pastored for a while, left and then wrote them the letter, titled Ephesians. The lie is that things will always be the way they are. Broken people, broken churches. The truth is that you can become a new man with a new heart and a new mind. The people who follow Christ can be one body, one church, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father to all. Ephesians. All right. Well, as always, good morning, Redemption. How are we doing this morning? Great. Uh, again, if you're a visitor, which we have some, um, I just want to remind you. I just want to remind you that um, we are so excited for you to be here this morning. And we as a church, we work really hard to be kind of known for a couple of things. We have these eight marks. We have our vision. We have our mission statement. And so I want to take a look right now at our mission statement. We're faithfully looking at that each and every week as we kind of center our minds on what we are doing as a church. So I'm going to put that on the screen for you now. And this is our mission statement. Redemption City Church exists to glorify God right by making disciples through gospel-centered worship service covenant family and multiplication i want you to really hear this i'm going to do this probably about one or two more sundays we are resolved to risk our comfort so that we might reach our city with a message that can release freedom in jesus in order that many would experience a redeemed life in Christ. And so like we've been saying, these four R's that you see on the screen are really the cornerstone of what we want to be doing as a church. We want to be risking things right out of our comfort zone for God's kingdom. I want you to think about that. Where, where are you at in this story? You want to be reaching out to the city, right? Being marked by the gospel. Are you reaching out to those um, with the gospel message. Are you releasing freedom first that you've experienced in Christ? And, that, and are you being an agent that releases that out into the community? And finally, are you being marked by having a redeemed life, moving out of your story into God's story and sharing that with other people? And so here's the question we've been asking. And I, and I don't want this question to get stale. I want you to really think about this question and figure out where you're at in here. And here it is for you. How are you presently risking your comfort? so that you are best positioned to reach this city. And so if you are still trying to figure out, I'm Pastor Brandon, how do I risk my comfort wisely? I don't wanna just risk my comfort for anything. How do I do it in a way that ultimately honors God and is profitable? We've been looking at the four necessary ways that you can do that. Here they are again. Number one, you can do this, you can risk your comfort by sowing seeds of membership 
and discipleship. Yes, I'm very aware that it's in your fill-ins and, and that's on purpose. Repetitively, repetition, writing down. Am I risking my comfort by sowing seeds of membership and discipleship? We've talked about both of those. We won't break that down in a full way um, today. Next one. Are we doing that by sowing seeds of regular offering and tithing? Right? Are you taking steps in those areas? We talk about the difference between offering and tithing, right? Tithing is your 10%. Offering is what you give above that, right? In that order, first give God 10% and then explore, God, can I give more? Can I give beyond the tithe in an offering format? Are you risking your comfort by sowing seeds of regular serving and glad participation? Where are you at in our church? Are you serving? Are you committing your time, your talents to God's church. And then finally, are you risking your comfort by sowing seeds of regular prayer and fasting, right? Even if you, hey, Pastor Brandon, prayer is one of my weakest disciplines. Hey, if you can start with five minutes a day, that's better than anything. Five minutes starting your day with the Lord. And then of course, fasting. We had a fasting guide that we handed out at the end of our visions um, series. And if you would like one of those, we'd be happy to give you one of those. And so if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you're bringing your Bibles and being a student learner, if not, we do have some in the windowsills. They're right here, the ESV version. So you can um, feel free to use those and just put them back at the inner service. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 13. That's where we're going to be camping out today. And I want to remind you that as we continue forward in our Ephesians series, which is titled Our Story into God's Story, it's going to be all about discovering who you and I get to be in light of Christ. And so last week, if you weren't here, or if you were here, just as a reminder, we had part 10 and it was titled a better way forward for humanity. And we're part of humanity, a better way forward for all of humanity. When we do that in Christ. And we learned that Paul often does a lot of repeating himself to make sure that we're going to get everything that he believes God has for us to hear. And so in verses one through 10, remember um, verses one through 10 of chapter two, we got our spiritual diagnosis which is that we are so dead to rights, right? That's what really that first 10 verses were about. And then we kind of turned in verses four through seven, we said, but God says all these great things. And so then in verses 11 through 22, it really was like a crystallization, remember, of the very same thing. Now, even though you're dead to rights and all these things have happened, let me kind of use some dramatic illustrations and language to really help you see all these things. And so we also learned that the good works that God is calling us to do is to be diversified yet unified. Remember, we're going to be, we want to be a diverse body of Christ, but we want to be unified under God. And we looked at, how do we do that? Well, we looked at, we need to draw near to God by the blood of Christ, but there's oftentimes roadblocks that stop us from drawing near to God. And there were seven of them that we laid out. And then finally, we learned, this is really important, that Jesus came to preach peace to all people, men and women, high and low, children, moms and dads, Jew and Gentile. He came to preach peace to the legalistic person. He came to um, preach peace to the rebel of God and every, um, those who are a rebel of God and everybody in between. And that brings us to today. And I'm really excited. This, this message today is part 11 and it's titled the gospel, the church, and our part in it. And it's going to be about learning what it really means to follow the will of God. Oh, that's one of those, man, that's a statement in the church. What's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my career? What's the, whoa, what does it mean to follow the will of God in your life? And here's the, here's, here's, here's the, here's the important part, despite your suffering. 
despite your suffering. There's a good word for those who have ears to hear today. It's going to be about understanding just how important it is to have the right message from God. If you don't have the right message from God, you, you don't have a message at all. So it's going to be about that. It's going to be about finally drawing near to God and evaluating where you're at in your relationship with him. And so remember, this remains the aim as long as we're in the book of Ephesians. This is our aim. No matter if you've been in Ephesians for your whole life or if today's your first time ever opening the book, our hope in this series of the church is that each and every person, including me, would have a fresh encounter in this book like you've never had before. And so I'm going to call Pastor Jack up here right now. He's going to be reading the word out loud and loudly out of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So we're going to follow along. We're going to see God's word all the way. I'm going to break it all down. So I want you guys to see it uninterrupted. And we're going to look at God's word now. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can receive my insights, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, mm -hmm. this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, mm -hmm. and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the history hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Thank you so much, Pastor Jack. This is the beautiful word of God. There's a lot in there and it may look a little confusing right now, but it won't be by the time we leave today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we have this incredible opportunity this morning to engage in your word without any interruption. Praise God. And when we consider how many people have died, literally died for this message, we should be humbled and so honored to have this tool we call the Bible without suffering any persecution. So today, ignite a passion, Lord, within us to not only see the beauty of your word, but to be drawn to do something about what we see in your word. Lord, we don't want to just see it. We want to do something about what we see. Grant me both the strength and the humility to both execute and get out of the way of all that you have planned this morning. It's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. So we've been in Ephesians now for going on 10 weeks. And we're now entering into our 11th week in the book of Ephesians. And somehow it's taken us that long to arrive in the beginning of chapter three. And for those who, of you who like thinking about the deeper things, I want to share this with you. I want to remind you that even though Paul was inspired by God to write this scripture, he was also an intellectual thinker. Okay, Just keep tracking with me. In other words, Paul was not a mindless robot in this whole process of being inspired. He knew what he was doing. Okay, Paul knew what he was doing. He knew, he knew three things. He knew the church needed instruction. 
He knew the church would need direction, and he knew that the church was going to need encouragement. And so he knew the church was under a lot of pressure and distress, and he also knew the church often got distracted. So Paul is basically saying to the church, hey guys, let me remind you about our God. And oftentimes we are under distress and we get distracted and we need encouragement. So this book of Ephesians is Paul saying to us, hey, let me remind you if you're under distress right now, if you are under um, pressure right now, if you are distracted in your life, hey, let me remind you about our God. And so Paul spends the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, chapters one through three, and he's really explaining all of who God is and all of what God has done. And then he's going to spend the second half of the book, chapters four through six, really talking about what we should then do about that and how we should defend it. But here, pay attention, because the order of what I just said is important. God did that for a reason. The first three chapters is all about who God is. It's not about what you need to do. God does the work. Chapters four through six, we get to do some participation, but you can't mix up the order. Listen, you have to come to a true biblical understanding, and then you need to have a wise biblical reaction this morning to who God is before you get concerned with what you need to do. If you try to switch the order and focus on what you're supposed to do in your life, and you don't understand who God is, you're going to be left wounded. Have you, have you ever met someone who's like spinning out or they're super dismissive to doing whatever God's commanding them to do in scripture? They're usually totally and utterly stressed out or resistant to whatever the command is about giving, serving, dying to themselves, laying down their desires. Listen, whenever that's happening, that's always a sign. Remember this, remember this as your pastor, that's always a sign that you're mixing up the order. You're probably falling into the slippery slope of focusing on what you can do for the kingdom and you're forgetting what God has already done for the kingdom. But when you really understand that our God is the savior, he's the shepherd and he's the redeemer. When you really get that, then we get to actually experience what the prophet Isaiah experienced. And I want to show you that. Let me explain. In Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah is going around to people. He's saying, woe, woe, woe to you who's done this and woe to you who's done that and woe to you who's done that. You remember that? If you haven't seen that, it's beautiful in the book of Isaiah. You should see this. And he kind of continues in this posture of kind of condemning everybody. Woe to you for who, for you, you, you're living this way. Woe to you who are acting in this way. He keeps doing this throughout Isaiah chapter one, all the way through Isaiah chapter five. And there's just something about the way Isaiah is doing it that God did not like. Now, maybe it was his tone of voice and the way he was woeing everybody, but most definitely it has something to do with Isaiah's his posture of his heart. And so we arrive in chapter six of the book of Isaiah. It, it, I'm telling you, if you haven't seen this, you, you really got to take a look at this. We arrive in chapter six in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah finally draws near to God and he begins to see God. Here, keep tracking. This is important. He begins to actually see God more clearly. This is the focus today, folks. He actually got to see God more clearly. And when that happened, his whole tune changed from, woe is you, woe is you. And what does he say in chapter six? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. And then Isaiah, he, he falls down on his knees. He lifts his hands up and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a man of a wicked heart. 
And now I see God and I'm humbled. Woe is me. Woe, forget about woe is me. See, he had to go through a humbling process, a humbling process to really recognize who God truly is. And his heart had to be softened. His mind had to be open. And that's what Paul's asking of us. So at that moment, when Isaiah throws his hands up, he surrenders, he says, I can't do this anymore. I give up, God. I can't do this. And it was in that very moment that God said, my son Isaiah, perfect. You're ready. And so Isaiah chapter 6 continues on, and, and God shows himself to Isaiah. And, and the word of God says that um, in that moment, God's glory filled the temple. And it was in that moment that God cleansed Isaiah in the midst of his brokenness. It's amazing. God does his healing work when we surrender and we say, we can't do it anymore, right? So God then looks out and he says, this is, I'm, still, I'm just narrowing through Isaiah. And then God looks out and he says, who shall I send to accomplish my purposes? And Isaiah, in his newfound brokenness, in his newfound humility, and his newfound right understanding of who God is, says, here I am, Lord, send me. Wow, look at that transformation. Verse one, oh, this, that, woe was you, woe was that. I know I'm righteous by chapter six, woe is me. Here I am, Lord, send me. Well, this posture is true of Paul as well. And he finally sees the Lord. Uh, we're going to get to chat. We're going to get to verses 13. You know, I'm going to get there, but I want you to get all that God has for you there. So, so Paul's there and he finally sees the Lord and he's and everything is transformed for him, right? Literally, like literally he lost his breath and his sight for a time. And how many of you would enjoy that kind of brokenness? Having your sight taken away, your breath literally taken away or being convicted to the point where you're like Isaiah crying out that you can't do it anymore. I'll tell you the truth. I wouldn't. And I haven't always liked the times where the Lord has humbled me and broken me, especially in my suffering. But we need to be humbled and broken, don't we? Yes, we do. We need that brokenness deeply. Scripture reveals that we often need to be brought low, folks, so God can exalt us and bring us on high. We often need to be brought low so God can exalt us and bring us on high. So lean in. You need to have a type of deep hurt. A type of deep brokenness, not by all of your sins and everything that people have done wrong to you, but by really, I'm sorry, not by what everybody's done wrong to you, but you need to have a deep brokenness about what you've done to others. And most importantly, you need to have a deep brokenness about what you've done to God, a perfect and holy God, and how you have not honored him well. You need to have that, that moment, that broken moment, because it's in that brokenness and it's in that hurt that God does his greatest work. It's what we see with Paul on the road to Damascus. That's what we just saw in the book of Isaiah. Because if you think you're a big shot and you go around trying to accomplish everything, your great accomplishments without that deep, humble brokenness is gonna wreck you and it'll kill you. You can even, God could be using you to help other people get healthier, but if you're not doing it from a broken, humble posture, you will be the one slowly dying. I've lived that already. So God allows us to live our lives. Listen to me. God allows you and he allows me to live our lives. He allows us to walk through the valley of the shadow, uh, of, the shadow of death. He allows us to endure unfortunate, unfamiliar, and uncomfortable circumstances all the time. And we don't like it. And God's not in love with us having those trials, but he does use it to cleanse us into a posture of humility 
and brokenness. Now, you remember Paul, right? Well, did you know that Paul was his new Christian name, right? His old secular name was Saul. And you know what it means? So Saul meant, I volunteer. I meant, I'm the guy. I can do it. I can do it. That's what it means to be Saul. I got this. I'm righteous. I'm going to do this for your kingdom. I'm going to kill these people. I'm going to do whatever I need to do for your kingdom. I can do it. I got it. That's Saul. And that's how we often sound, right? I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can lead it. I can do it. Overly confident in ourselves. But then Paul is transformed, right? And he receives, Saul is transformed, right? And he receives a new name, which is Paul. You know what Paul means? Paul means small and little one. Look at the intentionality of our God. Small and little one. Good night. So then Paul, for the rest of his life, volunteered and served the Lord all of his days, always from the humble posture. I'm Paul, small little one. Not the big, confident, brash Saul. I'm just Paul, the small little one. So I want to encourage you today, this morning, as we look at the text, and I want you to kind of see that you are on this kind of conveyor belt. You know what that is? Like the kind of in the warehouses, you're on this conveyor belt of holiness. And on this conveyor belt, um, God is kind of moving us through the different systems and the channels and the seasons of life. And day by day, he's applying things on that conveyor belt. He's taking things off that conveyor belt and he's doing it all to help us get closer to him. This is what it means to go through sanctification. And our job, my job, your job is to stay still on this conveyor belt. That as you go through the seasons and he subtracts and he adds, can you stay still? Can you not move? You see, the Bible calls us to be living sacrifices. The Bible is calling us to be a living sacrifice. Now, that made a whole lot more sense to the people back then because they did all the sacrificing. We don't really do a lot of sacrificing today. In fact, if you go around killing animals and sacrificing, you're probably going to jail, just letting you know. We don't do that anymore. But I do want you to know that, uh, just, just for the record, that when you cut and you kill an animal and you lay it on the altar to sacrifice, that animal doesn't move anymore. It's dead. This is D-E-A-D, -E dead, right? It's super dead. <laughs> so God says, you and I, we've been called to be a living sacrifice. And I want to break things off of you. And I want to cut things that need to be removed from you. But you need to stay flat on your back on this altar. But we're always squirming around, right? We're squirming around like, okay, God. Okay, I'm going to be your living sacrifice. And then he comes in to do the work. We start squirming around. We start wiggling around. And he's like, hey, lay down. I'm getting ready to do an amazing work. Let me finish my work. And I mean, think about it. It would almost be deader, uh, better for us to be dead on the altar, right? To us, to us to be super dead. But we're not. We're a living sacrifice. So we have our free will and we have our distractions. We have them all the time. So we often encounter problems in our lives and we put ourselves on the altar and we say things like, oh, we're having an encounter with God or, or we're experiencing the grace and mercy of God. And so then we kind of move forward. We say, yes, God, I'm going to be your living sacrifice until it gets difficult, until the trial comes. And then we squirm off of this process that God's doing. And I think it's so much more profound. Think about it. How much more profound would it be if we not only would choose to die for Christ, but that we would choose to live for Christ. Are we going to choose to live for Christ in our marriage and say, God, I live for you. Are we going to say, God, I'm going to live for you through my finances. God, I'm going to live up for you through entertainment. God, I'm going to live for you through my hopes and my dreams. And finally, am I going to live with you through every part of my being? And so here's your first, so, so who are we? We are a people 
called to lay down our lives on the conveyor belt of holiness as the Lord cuts and removes the parts of us that need pruning. As we learn to surrender with humility and brokenness, we become available vessels to be used for God and his purposes. This is only possible when we don't wiggle off the altar when the Lord prepares to cut. This is so important. We have to stay still so the Lord can do the work that he has for us. So this is going to be a super important question. This is very interactive, okay? So this is my question to you. Here's the big question today. Do you tend to stay on the conveyor belt of holiness when things get difficult and God prepares to cut and refine you into his workmanship project? Or do you wiggle and squirm off the conveyor belt? I want you to answer that question on your fiddling in the blank. Do you stay still when God's doing his, his work? Or do you tend to get off? Wait, this was off. Low battery. What do we, what do you tend to do? Okay, now, so Paul, <clears throat> Paul had those same options in his life, right? To either stay put or he could keep wiggling off of his conveyor belt of what God was doing in him. And so on. And what God was doing in him. So now, 11 weeks later, we're coming back into the book of Ephesians and we find ourselves right in the middle of chapter 3, starting chapter 3. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today, these 13 verses. And the whole point is like Isaiah, like Paul, we humble ourselves before God. And so within these 13 verses, we're going to be looking at the gospel. Keep track with me. We're going to be looking at the church and we're going to look at six critical ways that Paul's life collides with all of this. And then as we look at these six things, I'm going to be asking each and every one of you six important questions. And I hope that you really take those questions to heart. And hopefully we're going to look at Paul's life. We're going to be encouraged and equipped to see God more clearly because it always starts with that. Okay. So here's our first way. Number one, Paul followed the will of Christ into suffering. Paul followed the will of Christ into suffering. This is super important. Paul followed the will of Christ into suffering. So that's the first critical thing we need to understand. Let's look at verses 1 um, of, the, of this section and verses 13. This is actually the beginning and the end of it. Look how Paul kind of wraps the, 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 the beginning and the end of what we're going to read today. Here we go. Uh, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. That's verse 1. Now let's look at the last verse of today we're going to look at. This is like the sandwich effect. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory, which is your glory. Now notice that Paul opens and closes this passage by speaking about his present condition of suffering in his life. You see that he's a prisoner. There's a type of suffering going on. He's being imprisoned. And then he talks about his suffering. And what I want you to see is that the Christian life truly comes with suffering. Anytime you're walking in a right relationship with Jesus, it also comes 
with suffering. And though we shouldn't go around looking for suffering, we need to understand as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christians that we should never, ever be surprised by it. Just like a baseball player should expect sometimes for the baseball to hit him, and just like a soldier should expect the enemy to fire on him, we should not think that following Jesus involves a plan that does not include suffering. Amen? Because well, you're setting yourself up to be disappointed. Baseball's hitting, soldiers shooting, following Christ's suffering, period. It's the way it is. So let's look at a few faithful passages in Scripture to really solidify what I'm saying. Because following Jesus and suffering cannot be separated. They are inseparable realities of the Christian life. And that's what Paul is bookending right here in verse 1 and 13. I, my name, Paul, I follow Christ and I suffer. Let's look at these right now. Three verses. John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. This is okay. This is John. This is uh, in the book of John, the gospel of John. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they might, does they might potentially, what does it say? They will also persecute you. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Another apostle. Resist him. And I put the little bracket. Anytime you see brackets, that's Pastor Brandon putting in something so you know what's going on. Resist him, Satan. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. It's just a given that you're going to suffer when you are a disciple of Christ. And I'm always amazed at why we are so shocked when our trials come. How about this one? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are literally living a godly life, it's a promise that persecution is coming. Okay, now I want you to notice in that verse 1 on your Bible, because um, we have different things on the screen, so I got to bring your Bible. Um, notice that Paul does not refer to himself as a prisoner of Caesar even though he technically was. Does he say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar? No. Who does he refer to himself as a prisoner to? Jesus. Jesus. So even though he was literally in prison by the will of man, there was the will of man put him there, Paul knew that the will of Christ superseded all things. We're talking about the will of God. The will of God had Paul in prison, not ultimately the will of man. Let me say that again. Paul had a deep understanding that it was the will of God that he was in suffering and persecution, not the will of man. Because there's safety and there's hope and there's security when you're in the living hands of the God of the universe. Can't you see? Paul was not primarily concerned with his safety or his security or his desires. You're not seeing that in the text, folks. No, but he was consumed by the will of God and the mission that Jesus had for him. My question to you is, are you consumed with that? Elsewhere, Paul says this, this won't be on the screen. Elsewhere, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, imitate me. Well, imitate what? Imitate my life. Imitate my suffering. Imitate how I'm choosing what I focus on. Imitate me in prayer. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ as I willingly sacrifice my earthly safety, my earthly security, and my earthly desires. So here's the question for you. Okay, it's on your screen. Do you believe you are living as a prisoner of Jesus in such a manner that you are more consumed by Christ's mission and will for your life 
as opposed to being consumed towards your pursuits for your own safety, your own security, and your own desires? I want you to answer that question. And I want you to answer it faithfully. Are you consumed by the will of God for your life? Or are you consumed mostly with your own will? Are you focused on what Christ has for you or what you're trying to pursue for yourself? And as you write yes or no, if you believe, yes, that you are a prison, that you're living as a prisoner of Jesus, um, how can you then begin to disciple others towards a life of faith? That's my question to you. If you are doing that now, how do you disciple others towards that same goal? And if you answered no, like, man, I'm not there yet. I'm pursuing, I, I'm more pulled by my pursuits and my desires. And I, I try to fit God in when, when, it, when it's convenient. Um, here's, here's what I have for you. How can you begin to elevate Jesus in your life? A lot of times, if we're being honest, the answer is, Pastor, I don't know. But, and that's an okay answer. Because if you don't know, that's the beginning of taking your steps to know. It's acknowledging, I don't know what to do first. And I'd love to talk to you about that one-on-one. Number two, there's a second critical thing. Paul understood the message of Christ. Everybody say message of Christ. Paul understood that before he did anything. He understood the message of Christ before you get going in your God story. You need to understand the message of Christ. Okay, let's look at Ephesians chapter um, three. Now, verses two through six. Now, two through six, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me from you. Ready? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed wow, to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul right here is making it clear that his desire is for the church to understand the message of Christ. He wants the church to understand the message of Christ. But listen, Paul not only wanted them to have the right um, message about Christ, which is talked about in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore make disciples and do all these things. He wanted them to have the right message. It was important that they had the right message and the right gospel that really mattered. Think about it like this. There's a lot of false religions that have uh, have truths and missionaries going around the world doing things. But what's supposed to separate us as Christ followers is our distinct message that centers around Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, and that he reigns and he's the ruler over our life and over the whole universe. That's what's supposed to be distinctly different about our message. That's why one of the most frustrating things that I see in today's culture is an appetite to live on the extreme spectrums of this, of these two words, prosperity gospel and the poverty gospel. And we live on these extremes. And, and, and I believe Paul saw that he, he, they, he didn't use prosperity and, and poverty gospel. They would have more referred to it as like maybe like a, a Pharisees or, or like we called it legalism versus being a rebel of God or whatever it's going on or, or, or feeling like you have to not have any joy in your life. And so I want to look at both of these. These are real things. And I believe they, they are trickeries from the enemy and they are pervading our culture. So I want to look at 
what the prosperity gospel is because it's reigning in the United States. I want to look at the, pro the poverty gospel, which is starting to reign in, the, in a type of Calvinistic movement. And I want to look at both of them. I want you to see how they're both not profitable and why Paul is working so hard for us to get the right gospel message. So I've done the best I can to write up a definition of these two things in simplistic ways that don't lose the heart of the message. And so here, here's the prosperity gospel. It's going to be on your screen. The prosperity gospel in the best way that I can make it simple is this. The prosperity gospel centers around the ideology that health, wealth, and success are always the will of God. Keywords always. Always the will of God for his followers. It's the belief that faith, positive speech, attitude, and significant donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth and eternal standing. It's all about personal empowerment. Just turn your TV on and then you can, I won't say any names. It's a contractual agreement between God and humans. If you have faith in God, he will deliver security and prosperity to you in return. That is not the gospel. But neither is the poverty gospel. This is the, this is the, the more cool, the, the kind of what they call like the sexier one. If you're a young man or a young woman and you're going to church and you're studying scripture. Uh-oh. Let's see if we can do this. So here's the poverty gospel. The poverty gospel centers around being sick and poor as signs of holiness. If you are healthy or wealthy, it becomes, it is because you did not have enough faith to give more away and or you are in disobedience to God. It teaches that God desires you to experience sickness so you can learn to obey his word. It teaches that God wants you to be poor so you can depend on him more. That is not the gospel. Both of these ideologies Paul sought to overcome with correct teaching as he prepared the church with the right message. And I want us to be equipped with the right message. He, he knew that neither the, the prosperity gospel or the extreme poverty gospel perspectives would represent Jesus well. Yes, they both have speckles of truth in them, but they have been smeared with falsities, guys. They're smeared with falsities, and there's so much false in them, the little bits of truth are irrelevant. And so Paul had this unique role in redemptive history, and he's, and he's showing it right now in those verses 2 through 6. And verse 4 tells us, remember in verse 4 it says, he was given a special insight into the mysteries of the Messiah. Do you see that in verse 4? A special insight. And this mystery was not some cultish reserve for a select few who pay enough money if, for $59.99 if you call in to the church. No, this mystery was, it says in the text, this measure of Christ was for all nations, for all people. So Paul is urging the Ephesians to, to forsake any other focus of their attention. And he's telling us, hey, forsake any other focus of your attention that takes you off of Christ alone. Don't lift up wealth and prosperity. Don't lift up what you can do to give up for God. Take and put your focus on Christ. Now, we do not have the ability to reveal the message of Christ in the same way Paul did. We understand that, right? We didn't have that revelation. But we have been called to re-reveal. You with me? I'm going deeper now. We've been called to re-reveal its meaning as followers of the teachings of Paul, who was inspired by God. We are to re-reveal them now. Listen, you don't have to be a spectacular theologian to do this, but each one of us as Christ followers need to have a firm grasp 
on what the right gospel is and what is it even about? What is God calling us to do? And who is God calling us to be? That's why we're in Ephesians. Who are we? So if you are a new believer or you haven't spent a lot of time in the Bible, I want to encourage you to keep exploring and marinating in the beauty and the majesty of who Christ is. Keep learning the beautiful, <laughs> what our beautiful beliefs are about creation and the fall and redemption and new earth, new creation. Because above all else, we need to be able to communicate rightly the right gospel message. Because this is what Paul's talking about. This has been revealed to him and he's now revealing it to us. It's important. Now, even the fact that we are reading this Bible right now, the fact that the Bible's on our screen, that you have it in your lap, that should remind us of the faithfulness of many Christians who, who understood the right gospel, they preserved the right gospel, and they passed on, they proclaimed the right gospel for many generations. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So just as Paul went out of his way to make sure that we value and understand God's word rightly, so should we. Because if we aren't sharing the right message about God, we're not sharing any message at all. I want to say that again. If you're not sharing the gospel, the correct, unadulterated gospel, you're not sharing anything at all. Nothing that's saving. So here's the question. Do you understand the true and unadulterated message of the centrality of Christ within the gospel? Are you doing your part to re-reveal it to others? I want you to really think about this when you go home too. Do you understand the right gospel and are you sharing it? Are you being a re-revealer? If you said yes, here's my question. How can you start discipling others now to do the same, same thing? How are you multiplying? And if you said no, how can you begin taking some steps to get in the game? What can you do? Maybe consider writing out the gospel in one paragraph. See how that goes. Or, or maybe ask someone to do it for you. That's biblically wise. Like, hey, how would you articulate the gospel in a paragraph? And then look at that and see if it makes sense. Like, what can you do? You have to know the right gospel message. It's not good enough just that you have a feeling of God. It is, folks, it's not good enough. Let me, let me prove to you it's not how it's not good enough. Because we have a lot of lazy followers of Christ living today. And we have a lot of people that rationalize. And we have a lot of kind of spiritual, um, it's about my feelings. You can't tell me how to think. Stop trying to put me in a box, Pastor Brandon. Um, God knows my heart. Um, that's not good enough for God to know your heart. I'm going to say it again. That's not good enough. But let me show you how. God knew Paul's heart was genuine. God saw inside Paul's heart that he had broken his humility. God saw inside Isaiah's heart that a true transformation happened. But if these men did not articulate right gospel out of the mouth, me and you would not have a hope that, was, that, that would lead us to salvation. The right message has to come out of our mouths. It is not good enough for it to just dwell in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that. We have to step up as the people of God and care about being an ambassador of God. Number three, Paul was overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. This is this, is this fuel. He was overwhelmed with the grace of Christ. That's how he lasted. Let's look at that now. Verses seven and eight, part of eight. Of this gospel, 
I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me. Wow. This grace was given to me. So if you haven't noticed yet, the theme of grace permeates everything that Paul writes. <laughs> you have to understand just how significant this is that Paul was experiencing this grace for him in his, even when he was being converted. Remember, we looked at that in Ephesians part two, the, the second week. Remember, okay, this is the reason why grace is permeating Paul's scriptures is because Paul experienced the grace of God in such a, a, a huge way. Remember, Paul was a murderous man that God saved. He never forgot that. Can, can you, can you go on a journey with him right now? Think about the times where you were stuck, stalled, and stagnant in your darkness. The, the times where you were just doing the wrong things and sinning. You don't forget those things, especially your deepest, darkest problems. You think Paul ever woke up on his best day on the conveyor belt of is forgetting that he was the author of killing and murdering hundreds, if not being the influencer of thousands of peoples of death? Every day, he was overwhelmed with the grace of God. That's why it's permeating all over the text. He was not responsible just for one life, folks, many lives. Paul even referred to himself as the worst of all sinners. Yet when he experienced the overflow of God's grace and God's mercy, he was empowered to do great things in ministry, despite terrible things that he had done. That's because of God's grace. And that same grace that had a humbling effect on Paul, think about this, was the same grace he was now preaching and exhorting to fall upon the people of Ephesians. And it's the same grace he's asking to fall upon us. So in verse 8, as you see up there, Paul even refers to himself as the very least of all the saints. I'm the very least of all the saints. He's, he's literally referring, not just in the big sense of the whole world. He's speaking directly to like, hey, the other saints that you know, these other apostles, these people, I'm the least of all of them. Because they are already being, he was always being compared to the disciples that walked with Jesus. He said, hey, I'm just going to let you know, I'm, I'm the least of all the saints. I'm the least. No, I didn't walk with Jesus. No, I didn't pick up my net and I didn't just pick up my bags. I didn't leave my wife and mother-in-law who were sick to trust God like Peter. I'm the least of all. While they, were, while they were picking up their nets and picking up their crosses, I was killing people. I'm the least. And trust me, when he said it, he meant it. This wasn't some false humility moment Paul was having. He really believed it. But here's the thing. When, he, when you believe, and when Paul believed he was the least of all the saints, guess what that did for him? That rightly positioned him to be able to gladly serve, what does Jesus call? Serve the least of these, Matthew 25. When you believe that you're the least, you can serve the least. You see that? When you believe you're the least, you're positioned to then serve the least. The least. Therefore, grace should humble you and me and cause us to identify with everyone. No one should be beneath us. This is what Paul had that Peter didn't have. He could so rightly understand his weakness. He was able to have a type of brokenness and humility to see God even more clearly to the point where he would eventually meet with the apostle Peter and correct him. This comes from radical brokenness. But not only should the grace of God humble us, it should empower us. Okay. Do you, let me show you. Do you see that in verse 7? How they tie together the grace and the power? Do you see that? It was the gift of God's grace through Christ's power. Therefore, when the Lord called Paul on the road to Damascus, 
and he renewed him and gave him a, 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 new, a new journey, that was God's grace. Tracking? That was God's grace on Paul. Hey, you're doing this. Here's your new life. My grace. You get another shot. But watch this. It was the Lord's power that actually sustained, God, uh, sustained Paul for the rest of his life. Many of us have experienced the, the grace of the Lord. And we've had an experience and an encounter with him. And we've been transformed. Some of us are not experiencing the daily renewal of the Lord's power to keep us going. We need the Lord's power to keep us going. The Lord's power kept Paul it was, it was God's grace that activated Paul. It was the Lord's power that kept Paul going. We've all experienced the grace of God, but some of us are not experiencing God's power to push us forward. This is what he's saying. It, this was given to me by the working of God's power. So by the time Paul is writing this letter, he is a matured man. He's tested and he's well watered. He had a deep experience of God's grace and the empowering hand on his life. And now he's communicating about this awe and this wonder that he's experiencing. And he's telling the Ephesians, hey, I want you to experience this wonder and this awe as well. He's still not leaping to chapter 4 and 6. He's not talking about all the actional steps. He wants you to see the awe and wonder of God. So here's my question to you. Do you feel overwhelmed by the grace of God in such a way that you feel privileged? That's the key word. Do you actually feel privileged to serve the king? and his mission he has set up for you? Or do you often feel obligated to serve the king and struggle to activate in his mission? Do you feel like, man, it's a privilege that I get to come to church. It's a privilege I get to serve. It's a privilege that I get to, to tithe. It's a privilege I get to, or is it like, I better do this. I better be faithful. Okay, listen to me. If you, if you said yes to this and you feel overwhelmed with the grace of God and, and it's a privilege to you, how can you begin to deepen that well even more? How can you deepen that, that feeling of like, man, this really is a privilege. I want you to go in your devotions this week and say, if that was you, say, Lord, I want to increase my appetite that this is a privilege. But if you said no, and you're like, no, it feels more of an obligation a lot. I hate that's my answer, but it is, Pastor Brandon. Okay. I want you to know that this is a strong indication that you have not properly and sufficiently seen the depths of your sin juxtaposed to the grace and mercy of God. And I want to invite you to start to look at who you really are and how far from God you really are and how much God is offering you. And that's where you need to start. And this, because this could really be a sign that there's something dead inside of you. And that's not a condemnation over you. This is my love to you. If you are walking and you're coming to church week in and week out and you're opening up the beautiful word of God and you're not seeing anything and you're feeling like it's an obligation and you don't have any desire, my love to you is that this is a strong indication. Something's dead. Something is wrong. Something is not right. Something is, something is problematic. And you need to hit 911. Stop being so laggardly and thinking it's okay. You're not promised tomorrow. I saw the whole world flip out when Kobe died because someone who apparently can't die, died. No, you can die. You need to hit the 911 button. Seek God. Ask him to awaken you. Call your pastor. Call your mentor. Take care of your soul. Tomorrow's not promised. Hit 911. Number four, Paul proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Christ. This will get the, the second part of verse eight and nine now. 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ hmm. and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here we see that God empowered Paul to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, did you know that this word, this term unsearchable in Greek appears nowhere else outside of biblical Greek? So basically when Paul thought deeply about the glory of Christ, he had to make up a new word. That's pretty, that's all. That's awesome. He had to make, he's like, man, there's no word. I got to make up a word to somehow embody this. Job speaks of the unsearchable ways of God. And Paul describes the unsearchable wisdom of God in Romans. So this murderous man, this man, this killer, this, this man now redeemed because of the grace and the mercy and the power of God sustaining him is consumed. Now he's consumed with a lifetime pursuit of Christ. He's a living sacrifice. He's not squirming anymore. No more wiggling off the altar. He's on the conveyor belt. And he, wherever you want me to go, God, take away, take stuff off of me. I'm going to stay. Add things onto me. I'm going to stay. He stays on the conveyor belt the whole time. Now, perhaps you have fallen into the slippery slope in your own life of thinking, man, proclaiming Christ every day to people and, you know, sharing the gospel every day that gets old. But verse eight, look at verse eight, verse eight dramatically disagrees with you. Look at it. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 8 is disagreeing with you and me. Something so magnificent and so unsearchable could never be boring. Could never be old. So if this preaching you're hearing today is boring, that's fine. If you, if you feel like when you're sharing the gospel, you're boring, okay. It's not because Christ is boring. Christ is not boring. His glory is incalculable. As long as we're truly proclaiming the right message about the right king and the right savior, we should never run out of things to talk about. Ever. Because he's unsearchable. He's that big. Hmm. Now, in verse 9 that we just saw up there, Paul says he came to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Can't you see? It wasn't just about proclaiming the gospel. Nope. It was about making sure that everybody received the message. You know how many churches are more just about like, man, I did a good job because I preached my good message. I could care less. Did you receive something? Don't just, oh, oh I, did my, I did my duty. I shared the gospel with three people. Are you, are you concerned that they're getting the message? And that they understand the message? Hmm. See, this is about moving from not just proclaiming, but being able to explain. This is what Paul's talking about. To bring to light for everyone, what is the plan? I want to make this known. I want you to understand the plan of this mystery. Super important. And listen, if you want to move from not just being someone who can share the gospel, but if you want to move to being able for people to understand the gospel that comes out of you, yes, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you don't save people. Yes, God saves people, but he uses you and he uses me. And if you want to be an instrument that God can use where people can understand the gospel message, it's not just your intellectual words that you use. It requires you having an ongoing relationship empowered by the Holy Spirit with Christ in the center of your life. Because if, if you don't have Christ in you and he is not vibrantly living in you, you have nothing to share. You can't impart into someone what's not inside of you. It has to be genuine. So here's the question. Do you regularly proclaim and explain 
the unsearchable riches of God with a passion that attracts people to God. Not yourself. I've been through the whole spectrum of this. First, not proclaiming. Then proclaiming and not explaining. Then proclaiming and explaining, but, it's, but they're being drawn to me. Then proclaiming and explaining and learning to get them to draw towards God. It's a journey on this conveyor belt of holiness. But are you on the conveyor belt? Are you letting God cut so you can become all that God's called you to be? So if you said yes, yes, Pastor Brandon, I'm regularly proclaiming and taking time with people to explain with passion. If you said yes, have you seen God work in the person or these people? Well, no, not really. Okay. Are you seeing fruit in your life as you passionately proclaim and explain the gospel? If you said, no, I'm not regularly doing this. What are some identifiable roadblocks that are getting in your way from drawing near to God in such a way that he can use you? I want you to be thinking about that at home. What can you do? What's going on? What do you need to ask God for in prayer? Number five, keep, we're almost there. Paul had a high view of Christ's church. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, if you have a right and high view of Christ, you should have a right and high view of his church, period. You cannot say, I lift Christ up and not his church. Cannot do it. We're going to see Paul begin to really flesh this out as we go into the second half of uh, chapter three next week. And then he's going to start screaming it through verses, through chapters four through six, uh, four through four and five, actually. But right here in verse 11, Paul is saying that there's things, look at this. I want you to look at verse 11 as I say this. What Paul is saying is there are things that the church does that literally reaches all the way through the heavens and the entire spiritual realm. Are you kidding me? What we're doing right now, me, <sighs> exhorting, hopefully faithfully to the text, you, ears open, listening, heart open. He's saying what we're doing right now reaches all the way to the heavens. It's being, something's being made known. That's incredible. That is incredible. Wow. Let's, let's get into this whole manifold, manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That sounds really out there, Buzz Lightyear type stuff right there. What is that even talking about? That's one of those phrases. It's like, what, what's, what is he saying right here? Okay, so here's what I want you to see. These rulers and authorities are probably both righteous and unrighteous heavenly beings. Let, let's use some dramatic language. Let, let, me, let me do my best impersonation of Pastor Paul, okay? Basically, we're talking about the angels and the demons and us as people, all of us. Scripture is always proclaiming loudly that angels, did you know this, that scripture talks about all the way throughout scripture, that the angels look upon the grace and mercy of God playing out on us and they marvel at God. They marvel at God. They look at what God's doing here in this, in this ecclesia and they're marveling. Did you also know that the demonic forces look upon the grace of mercy of God played out through the ecclesia and it says that they have fearful trembling? What do they both have in common? One's fearful trembling, one's marveling. Both are watching. Both are studying. Both are 
presently watching this whole thing play out. In fact, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says angels desire, angels desire to look into all these type of things. Peter talks about that, that the angels, they, they look intently to watch. That's crazy. You should go see that in 1 first, in first Peter. Therefore, we can wisely build this bridge that God intended to make his purposes known even to angels and demons through his church. We have an incredible opportunity. Now, when considering these demonic forces, I want to remind you that the good news is they've been defeated on the cross, and they know they've been defeated. Okay, so don't get too scared. But demons are watching. They've been defeated. They know they've been defeated. Therefore, therefore, the church, what we're doing right here, the church is a dramatic announcement from God on high to Satan and all his minions that his rule is coming to an end. When you, when you hear my people worship, Raise a hallelujah. When you see my people bow their knees, when you see them tithe, when you see them sacrifice, it is a public announcement. You are done. This is powerful stuff. This is, this is a deep, deep theology in Ephesians. In other words, the main point is that God is revealing his plan and all of his power to all the rulers and all different types of authorities through the existence of the church. So let me drive it home like this. According to verse 11, Jesus came to accomplish God's plan. Jesus came to do that, right? He's tracking with me. Jesus came to accomplish the plan. And since he is the central character of this plan, all things are fulfilled in him. All things are. He's the central, he's the key, he's the key. Now, remember, the church is the witness of Christ and we're the glory of Christ. So if Christ is the center, is the center character and we are literally the bride of Christ, the church is inseparable. You can't lift up Christ and not lift up the church. Now, can you imagine how encouraging this message was to the Ephesians? Can you go into this narrative and they're hearing Paul exhort this? That means people from all backgrounds, farmers and bankers and carpenters and servants and masters and slaves and moms and dads and those high and those lows and sinners, they're all hearing this and they're being dramatically encouraged that no matter how big or small your role is, no matter what your sex is, no matter what, if you're sick or you have a disease, you have leprosy, you get to be a part of this magnificent story of Christ and his church. They had an identity now and a new purpose beyond themselves because that's where we die. When we don't have an identity and a purpose beyond ourselves, they are now being invited to a journey of a lifetime. And we are being invited into that same journey. And that's a beautiful thing. So here's my question. Do you have a high view of God's church in such a manner that you joyfully center your decisions, your finances, family, and desires around it? displaying to the world and the rulers and the angels and the demons in heavenly places that Christ reigns over the throne of your life. The demons, the word of God says that the spiritual, the, the, the spiritual principalities, the demons and the evil and Satan, they're among us and they're watching. When they look at you, are they like this, this young man, this young woman belongs in the reign of Christ. When the angels are sitting here and they're watching your life, they're like, wow. We're amazed that this young man and this young woman, this couple reigns in Christ. If you answered yes, how, um, how has God used this to benefit your life and others who are attached to you? 
How has how have you having a high view of God's church? How's that playing out to impact other people? Or does it? If not, here's what I want you to think about. What have you consciously or subconsciously declared is more important than Christ and his church? What have you accidentally fallen into the trap of, of saying, this is more important to Christ. This is more important than Christ and the church. What are you lifting up higher? And are you willing to start laying that down? Are you willing to start laying that down? Okay, last one. Number six, Paul drew near to God through Christ. Verse 12, in whom, right? So it, it, it comes off, let's go verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ our Lord. And then it starts off in 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Listen, because of Christ, we can only, we can not only approach God, we get to draw near to him. We saw it last week. We can draw near to him by the blood of Christ. Of course, we don't come to God with arrogant boldness. We come acknowledging from humility that we have amazing access to him, right? That's what we get to do. This is why we've been called to live by prayer. And this is a big, big segue to next week. It's going to be really important. This is why we've been called to live by prayer. We should love prayer. I need to love prayer more. You need to love prayer more. The gospel sometimes can be seen and understood loudest in prayer. Think about it like this. If you are a Christian, you can pray anytime, anywhere you want. What an amazing gift. If you are a Christian, you can pray anytime, anywhere you want, and God will hear you. I don't want to start going into next week. But I am going to say one thing from next week. Did you know? I'm going to expand this in a really awesome way. Did you know that God hears and answers every single one of your prayers? I'm going to say it again. Did you know that God not only hears, but answers every single prayer you ever ask him? I'm going to explain that next week a little bit more. This, 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 this whole prayer thing is getting ready to get really important to Paul. Because this is what he's about to start talking about. But we can't, we can't interact with next week in prayer until we understand these first 13 verses is about Paul and his humility, his brokenness, his invitation for us to have God in the center. Here's my question to you. Are you currently in a season where you are actively drawing near to God day by day? Are you actively drawing near? You shouldn't overthink these questions. This really is like, yeah, I am. No, I'm not. <laughs> If you said yes, you're drawing near day by day. Hey, you need to praise God for the ability to do that because he gave you that ability. Stay close to Jesus. Never let him go. Praise God for where you're at and don't let it go. If you said no and you're not actively drawing near to him, I want to re-encourage you back to those seven roadblocks from last week. Something's wrong. 911, something is wrong. Um, are you presently sinning? Are you denying the voice of the Lord? Are you not in discipleship and community? Are you rejecting God? Are you lying? Lying is really, really bad. Are you gossiping? Are you slandering? Are you denying your purpose and call? Something's wrong. You, you, need, to, you need to attend to your soul. Now, as we begin to land the plane right now, I want you to think about this, okay? This is where we're going to end. Stay with me for about a minute. If you are in prison for your faith, like, like Paul, do you think it would make you stronger? If you were in prison in light chain house arrest, like Paul was, do you think your faith would grow stronger or would you be discouraged? Just, just think about who you are, your personality, who you are right now in your relationship with God. Would you be strengthened 
or would you be discouraged? Okay, get your answer. I'm doing the same. Okay, so what are some real steps you can take to strengthen your faith in such a way that when, if that happened to you, or you're, you're faced with challenges in your life, and suffering and trials and afflictions come, you're strengthened instead of broken down. That you stay on your conveyor belt of holiness and you don't wiggle off and run all the time. How, do you, how can you stop running and start staying right where God has you? Here's another thing I want you to think about. Which of these six critical ways of how Paul's life was rightly colliding with the gospel? Which one are you thriving in the most out of those six things? Which, which ones? The will of Christ in the suffering, the message of Christ being overwhelmed by God's grace. Where are you thriving the most out of those six? Circle it. Circle it now. If there's one or, or four of them, whatever it is. Where are you thriving the most? If, and then, hey, listen to me. When Vanessa, as she prepares to come up right now, whatever ones you circled, could you please praise God right now in this last worship song? God, thank you for giving me the ability to so trust your will. Or, or God, I thank you for the grace of Christ. Now, which of those six critical ways are you struggling with the most? I'm really struggling to draw near to God. Or I'm really struggling to see Christ's church as super important. I want you to put a box around that. I want you also to spend time during this next song inviting God into a position of power and authority over your life. Ask him to awaken this dead part of you. But whatever you do, don't be a mindless robot. Paul wasn't. Let's worship the God of the universe. Let's praise him for what we're doing well. Let's invite him into what we're struggling because he's always ready and able to help us. Let's stand and let's worship.